Hey, this is Matt from Star Tours. You're listening to the Mousecapades Podcast. This is James from Hollywood Studios, and you're listening to the Mousecapades Podcast. This is Amanda from Disney Junior, and you're listening to the Mousecapades Podcast. Hello, this is David from Star Tours, and I just helped Nick's son build his very first lightsaber. Hi, this is Marcos over at Star Tours. I don't listen to podcasts often, but when I do, I listen to Mousecapades. Interested in becoming a travel agent yourself and helping others plan their next Disney vacation? Interested in learning more about Surge 365? How to get paid to travel, make $1,000 bonuses, or just simply want to book your next Disney vacation with Disney professionals? Well, Dream Makers at Two Tickets to Paradise Travel are ready to help you make your wish come true. Contact travel at two tickets to paradise.net. Don't dream your life. Live your dreams. Have an idea, question, or want to share your experiences on the show? Contact Nick and Dave anytime. Email them at mousecapadespodcast at gmail.com. Text them at 407-674-0414. Follow Nick and Dave on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Simply search for Mousecapades Podcast. Listen to Nick and Dave on iTunes, Podcast Addict, TuneIn Radio, and Stitcher Radio. Simply search for Mousecapades. Mousecapades Podcast. Now, from the Mousecapades Studios, here are your hosts, Nick and Dave. Good pals, blood brothers, me and three others, Bobcat, Omar, Aladdin, Cassie. Friends, none closer. Get mad, heck no, sir. Not us for strong or permanent Four guys out pounding the pavements of Baghdad. Four guys with one Arabian dream to stay this lazy and play like crazy. Babcat Omar, Aladdin Cassie. Welcome back to the podcast that entertains that space between your ears. Whether listening on your iPhone, iPad, iPod, Android device, computer, or whatever it may be. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You're listening to another episode of the Nick and Dave Mousecapades podcast. Later on in the podcast, we will be talking about a dark but bright era for the Walt Disney World Animation Studios, commonly referred to as the Disney Renaissance. It's a remarkable story. You do not want to miss it. But first... Here's what's happening in the news. Listeners and Dave, you know D23 is upon us, and this week marks the fourth ever D23 Expo. It's been going on since 2009 and every second year after that. The event has offered fans the chance to come together and celebrate all things Disney, while also getting a sneak peek at upcoming projects across the company's numerous divisions, including parks, films, and even video games. With rumors swirling about possible announcements for quite some time now, speculation and anticipation are at a fever pitch. Hey, one of my favorite parts of any event like this is making predictions. And Dave, that's what I want to do for the rumors and news. I want to make predictions as to what they're going to announce at D23. 
This D23 conference is a mecca for anybody who's a Disney fan, and one of these days I'm going to make it to there. Um, they just seem to have some big bombshell that they drop every time there's a D23 convention. So it is exciting, folks, and uh, we can only guess what, what's going on. So let's do a little bit of that guessing. Yeah, I was just searching the web earlier this week as far as, you know, people putting in their predictions, what they feel uh, D23 is going to present at the convention. And so they're kind of ordered from, you know, 10 to 1. So this was number 10. And what's cool about this, not only am I going to list what you, the listeners, and everyone around the world is predicting that Disney is going to release at D23, but they also give the percentage as to the reality of it actually being released. Do you kind of understand where I'm going with this? Yeah, this is, uh, this is some interesting stuff here. Let's see what they had to say. Okay, so Hollywood Studios gets a new name. We all know this already. This really should be 100%. But uh, the data that's been collected worldwide says the chance of this happening, that D23 is going to announce that Hollywood Studios is going to get a new name, that's at 90%. The announcement's not going to be so much that it's getting a new name. We already know that. The announcement should be, what is the new name of this park? And we can only hope that they actually announce uh, the new name to the park. Set at number nine. Talking about Avatar, you know, Dave, it's been a long time since we've heard anything about Avatar. Disney really hasn't put much out there since day one. The work continues, though. As I was there on my trip, I saw some of the work continuing on Avatar Land. So we know something's going down. We just, they've announced some of the major attractions there. We all have seen, you know, the YouTube videos with the lighted pathway as you walk, things like that. I want to see something cool come out of this convention about Avatar Land to get me really excited about it. Well, you know, Disney has stated in the past that they have plans to open up Avatar Land in 2017. But, you know, with the whole uh, Disney Hollywood Studios bringing in um, Star Wars Land, which is rumored and and actual factual, really, um, that's kind of overshadowed Avatar. And I think, that to me, that's one of the reasons why Avatar Land isn't getting the publicity that it deserves. But, set at number nine, there's a 10% chance... That the Avatar Land opening date will be announced for the 2017 season. Yeah, the Avatar project's getting overshadowed by all that's going on with Disney Hollywood Studios right now. And, and that's foreseeable because the attractions that are going into this new park are going to be amazing. I mean, if you're talking Star Wars Land, you're talking Cars Land, you're talking, you know, some sort of Pixar place, it's going to be great. And I think that the general public has more interest in that than just the Avatar Land. Not that Avatar Land's not good, it's going to be great, I think, but. You know, Avatar is one movie, and you've got a series when you talk about Star Wars. You've got a company when you talk about Pixar. So that's a huge deal, and it's got a wide variety of listeners and viewers when it comes to those kind of things. So I think that's definitely overshadowing the Avatar land. But, hey, an opening date would be great. My wife said that we're not going back to Disney until some of this stuff actually opens up. So um, a light at the end of the tunnel will be great for my family. So, you know, Disney has announced that they're coming out with uh, Disney Infinity, the Star Wars version. And we talked about that uh, quite a bit ago. Actually, I don't know. That was like back in, what, May we talked about Disney Infinity or, yeah, or something like that. It's been, it's, it's been a long time. Uh, so this is set at number eight. Kingdom Hearts 3 will include Star Wars, Marvel, and Pixar worlds. Now, if you're a Kingdom Hearts fan, you know, I'm a Kingdom Hearts fan, but, and, uh, you know, I used to work in a game store in the uh, the city of St. Louis, and that was one of the number one selling video games in our store and in the city was Kingdom Hearts. And I think it'd be really cool if Kingdom Hearts did include Star Wars, Marvel, and Pixar worlds. Now, this actually has 
a 65% chance that Disney at D23 will announce this. And I'm sure there's people out there that, that really care about that, but I, the Disney Infinity thing, I've never really grasped the hold of the concept. Like, I, I know the figures, but, you know, Nick's more of the game. Well, this isn't Disney Infinity. We're talking about Kingdom Hearts. Oh, yeah, I know nothing about that. <laughs> All right, dude, Kingdom Hearts is awesome. You need to check it out. Do some YouTube clips of that. But nice segue, by the way, because talking about Disney Infinity, set at number seven, there's a 5% chance that Disney Infinity will be integrated into the park. So the data that was collected suggests that there might be a 5% chance that Disney is going to announce that somehow Disney Infinity is going to be wrapped up in the Disney parks. Hey, I think that would be awesome, you know, and just to see I, the figurines. You mentioned the figurines. The figurines are cool. I actually have the video game. Uh, yes, my wife did buy it for Christmas because the intent was to play it with Colin. <laughs> and uh, I've kind of just kept the figurines for myself and put them up in my spare room uh, where I record this podcast and do some of my junior animation and stuff because they're just really unique and really cool. They remind me of the old animator uh, figurines for, for people who are animating uh, cartoons. You know, you, you, you would see it all the time in the studios where the animators would have their figurines of the characters that are in the next and upcoming movie. These characters are like that, and they're really crafted really well, and they look really neat. I would like to see costumes in the parks that are modeled or tailored after Disney Infinity. I think that would be pretty cool. Yeah, here's another prediction. I think they should take those figurines from the Disney Infinity and incorporate them into the park so that the kids or whoever, or people like Nick that play those video games, um, can go to a certain attraction and you know put that figurine, however they would, into the video system, put that onto some sort of device at the parks, and unlock some sort of new good game, or you know give them some sort of credit, or do kind of like the sorcerer uh, scavenger hunt that they have for the kids. Do something like that with Disney Infinity where they ha- where they could take those figurines throughout the park and place them in different spots and, and have some sort of reward. I think that would be kind of cool. All right, with uh, Disney Hollywood Studios getting all these different changes, uh, the data has suggested that there's a 25% chance that Disney will announce that the streets of America at Hollywood Studios will become Monstropolis based off of Monsters, Inc., which is cool because when we went to California last time with my family, they had Monstropolis set up when this was right around when Monsters U was coming out. And uh, so I remember getting my picture taken with Sully and uh, Mike Wazowski, and it, it just looked like the neighborhood that they were in. I, I can't remember if the whole city was done up like that or not, but they did definitely had a corner set up in that, that kind of style. So seeing a street like that would be pretty cool, I think. So we all know that Disney bought out the rights for Star Wars. There's a Star Wars land coming. They've completed Episode 7, which is coming out in December, and they're working on 8 and 9 for the new Star Wars film. This has to do with the reveal of Star Wars anthology films, okay? And so, you know, those are the films that break apart from the storyline and go more in-depth with the characters' backstories, like sort of like, uh, you know, the Avengers. So it's a spinoff, basically. No, no. So you've seen the movie Avengers, right? Right. And you know how they have the side stories with Thor and Iron Man and all the other, and Captain America, and they have their own movies? Right, so is one of them going to be called, like, Han Solo, and it's going to be his story? No, you're absolutely right. Okay. So they'll be called whatever they're going to be called, but a lot of people think that at least there's a 70% chance that they're going to start releasing some of these titles of these new films that that will be coming out for the new Star Wars film. Uh, Ring them a little bit harder for every cent that you can get out of these. (laughs) 
Yeah, but I will I will pay the money to see all these movies. I think to me, I'm more of a Star Wars fan than a Marvel fan. Uh, Disney having the rights to Marvel and making all these movies, you know, kind of morphed me and molded me into be a Marvel fan. So I'm already a Star Wars fan, so I'm going to enjoy these movies even that much more. Yeah, I'll go see them too. I'm not kidding anybody. <laughs> so, you know, we talked about the new expansion for Disneyland, how they just consumed two major plots to expand Disney's California Adventure and Disneyland. But a 50% chance, the data suggests that Disney at D23 will announce the major Marvel attraction that people feel is going to Disneyland. Into one of the two parks that are already there or something new? Into the land that they bought up. So at Disneyland as a whole, you know, you have Disneyland and you have uh, Disney California Adventure. So I don't know where they're going to put it. I would assume Disney California Adventure. But uh, the t- 50% of the data suggests that Disney might announce what they're going to call that land. All right, Dave, there's also speculation. 80% uh, of the data suggests that Disney's going to announce Star Wars land for both Disneyland and Disney World. Tell something we don't already know, right, folks? (laughs) Right. All right, so moving on. Uh, Illuminations. You love Illuminations. Yeah, it was super cool. My son slept through it the last time, all through the fireworks. Do you know how old Illuminations is, Dave? I know that it has not been there since the park opened. I know they used to have an air show that went on to, um, we're going to say, somewhere around, I don't know, 10, 12 years. Yeah, it's been there for about 15 years, bud. There's rumors that there might be a replacement for Illuminations, and the data suggests that there's a 30% chance that Disney might just say, hey, yeah, you know what? We're going to replace Illuminations with something else. I think it would be great while they're on this movement of change, Go ahead and change. Change is good. <laughs> they have a ton on their plate right now. I think that they should leave Epcot alone. Maybe when all this is over with, then there'll be some new technology, something super cool to put into that. Okay, so also, finally, our number one. Did you go off and did you see Incredibles? Yeah, I've seen the movie and The Incredibles. Yeah, The yeah. Incredibles. It's about what? It's about 10 years old, something like that? Yeah, and so popular. I'm surprised that they haven't milked that one for another sequel. Okay, no, that, well, we've talked about that. You know that's right. coming out. So, yeah, so a lot of people think that they're going to show footage of maybe maybe a trailer of Incredibles 2, the new movie that's coming out at the D23 Expo. So, you know, I hope they actually show The Incredibles. I hope they show Finding Dory, you know. Show some of this stuff out. Tease me. Let me see some of this stuff so I can get excited about it. Yeah, it took them long enough with that Incredibles, though, right? Because, I mean, it's so old that they definitely should have had something out before that. It's not like they had to wait on actors and actresses. They had their animators at the wheel. So I'm, I'm excited for it. Yeah, we, we've got some, some cool announcements that are just around the corner at D23. Can't wait to see, sink my teeth into what they discovered and what they made for their announcements. All right, dude. Hey, Dave. What's up? Take us back. All right, let's go. We're traveling backwards in time. Right now, we're leaving the world of today behind. So if your imagination is ready, here we go. Kicking off this week in Disney history, we go August 16th, 1955. This is the day that one of the original track, well, not original because it didn't open when the park opened, but uh, one of the one of the original rides that I rode in my lifetime anyway at Walt Disney World opened up in Disneyland. This would be Dumbo the Flying Elephant. The, the ride was actually anticipated to open up and be one of the opening day attractions, but it took them a little bit longer to prepare the fiberglass elephants than predicted. So uh, they missed the cutoff for the opening day uh, attraction, but 
slightly after the opening day. This opened up a couple days after the park opened on August 16th, 1955. You know, Dave, when we talked on our inaugural episode, what we remember from the parks growing up as a child, this is one ride specifically that I remember besides running through uh, the entrance of the Magic Kingdom and into Cinderella's Castle. Um, was the Dumbo ride. Now, I know you're talking about Disneyland, okay? But as far as Disney World goes, buddy, um, I can remember hopping in Dumbo and then pulling that lever to go higher and higher. And I don't know, just when you mention the Dumbo ride, I immediately picture myself four years old all over again riding that ride with my parents. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is is that this ride's not really that exciting. They have it at every single carnival that comes through town. Why is it so... I mean, it's such a... Like, it's a nostalgic ride, I guess, is why we love it so much. But, you know, when my daughter was growing up, I was determined that that was going to be the first ride that she rode at at Disney World. And uh, she did. Got in a little argument with my stepmom over that because she wanted to watch the parade that was coming through. But we walked in and went straight to Dumbo, hopped on. That was her first ride at at the Magic Kingdom. Do you consider the train, like, a ride? I better say yes because my son, that's about all he can do. (laughs) He loves it, though. So, okay, well then, I guess my son's ride wasn't... His first ride wasn't Dumbo. He rode Dumbo on his very first, like, attraction, like, ride at Disney World. So it's kind of cool. It's yeah. something they have in common, but we rode the train to get there first. Yeah, I'd count I'd count Dumbo as his first ride. Who claims the train is their first amusement park ride? All right, moving on. Next, next date in Disney history. This is August 18th of 1981. This was the day that the Wedway People Mover expanded from the parks, opened up in the Houston airport. Did it really? Something else I didn't know. Uh, that was the year I was born, by the way, so I'm dating myself here. Um, yeah, so the Wedway People Mover makes its debut outside of the parks. We have one more date in this week in history. That would be August 22nd of 1929. Going way back on this one, but this was the date that one of the original Silly Symphony episodes, The Skeleton Dance, was released. I love it, man. That is one of my favorites. That's Colin, one of his favorites. And I guarantee you, if you play that in your classroom, your kids would absolutely love that. It's something about the music, the dance, how it's in black and white, the nostalgia of it, the just Silly Symphonies rock. That was a hit. He had a hit then. And when I go back and do my Disney research, they have a ton of things about the Silly Symphonies. And most of the time, I just read them and I move on and I don't really make announcements on it. But this one is one of the cooler ones. So I did decide that this one is newsworthy for This Week in Disney History. And that's going to do it for This Week in Disney History. The Mousecapades Podcast, sponsored by TwoTickets2Paradise.net. From 1984 to 1994, a perfect storm of people and circumstances changed the face of animation forever. By the mid-1980s, the fabled animation studios of Walt Disney had fallen on hard times. The artists were polarized between newcomers hungry to innovate and old-timers not ready to relinquish control. These conditions produced a series of box office flops and pessimistic forecasts. Maybe the best days of animation were over. Maybe the public didn't care. Only a miracle or a magical spell could produce a happy inning. This is not a fairy tale. It's the true story of how Disney regained its magic with a staggering output of hits like Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, 
The Lion King, and more over a 10-year period. In 2009, an American documentary film directed by Disney film producer Don Hahn and produced by Hahn and former Disney executive Peter Schneider documented the history of Walt Disney, covering the rise of a period referred to as the Disney Renaissance. This Disney Renaissance is now deemed by many Walt Disney insiders as... Waking Sleeping Beauty. So Dave, let's talk about some of the major players during this Disney Renaissance period between 1984 and 1994. Yeah, some of our listeners will probably recognize the names. Obviously, you got Roy Disney, but you've got Michael Eisner, who's a huge name. You've got Peter Schneider. You've got uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg. You've got uh, the young John Lasseter and Tim Burton. But there's a couple of other names that you may not know as well. Uh, we've got Dick Cook. We've got Don Bluth. We'll talk about Howard Sherman. So some of these guys that you maybe know them, maybe you don't know, but we'll, we'll inform you either way. And I like to call Howard Sherman as the savior of Walt Disney animation studios and we'll get to that later on but yeah so like don Hahn, he was a producer and he actually produced the the film waking sleeping beauty he has also produced some of the most successful animated films in recent history dave including you know the lion king beauty and the beast those were the the first animated films to be nominated by the academy of motion picture arts and science for oscar for best picture He is currently right now the executive producer of the Disney Nature Films and owns his own film production company called Stone Circle Pictures. He was the assistant director back then on Fox and the Hound. He co-directed Pete's Dragon along with Don Bluth, and we'll get get to him later on. He just completely, utterly shredded the Disney company, or I should say the animation studios. And he became the production manager for, you know, The Black Cauldron, which wasn't one of my favorites. He also produced animation films such as The Lion King, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and The Emperor's New Groove. Yeah, and he's the director of the movie Waking Sleeping Beauty, so a lot of this stuff comes from his perspective as well. So, uh, but he was one of the major players. The next guy on our list is Peter Schneider. Peter Schneider was a high-energy dude, like always jumping around, always seemed to be happy, but you didn't want to get on this guy's bad side. He was responsible for helping to turn around the feature animation department for Disney Company and creating some of its most critically acclaimed and highest-grossing animated features, uh, including Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Beauty and the Beast was actually nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. He also had a hand in Aladdin and The Lion King. So Peter Schneider, he was a likable dude, but some people didn't like him as well. You know, he was either... You either loved him or you hated the guy. He actually, he had a temper. He was a nice person, but man, when you peeved him off, you peeved him off. And in the documentary, Waking Sleeping Beauty, there's a segment where the animators are pretty much telling Peter Schneider, hey, we really don't like the way the beast is going early on in this film. You know, in the beginning, we're portraying him as a young beast, uh, not in a human form, but in a beast form, like a little toddler. And that he really looks like he's just a a spinoff or a cheap shot over uh, 
the little minion beast from the Adams family, huh? Yeah, he was really kind of stubborn with what he wanted to do with this and the whole character. And, and everybody else in the animation department just revolted against the guy, and he just went off. Yeah, he was livid. Another major player you might recognize, and I hope we all do, Michael Eisner. He was the CEO of the Walt Disney Company. You know, he got his start quick, Dave. He had brief stints with NBC and CBS. He, uh, ABC hired him as an assistant to the national programming director. He moved up the ranks and eventually became a senior vice president in charge of programming development. In 1976, he became the president and CEO of Paramount Pictures. And during this tenure at Paramount, he turned out some hits like Saturday Night Fever, Grease, Star Trek, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Beverly Hills Cop. Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Cheers, one of my all-time favorites, and Family Ties. Yeah, those are all classics, but none of them are animations. So the, the judge was still out on the decision with whether he would make a good president of the Disney company for animation from the perspective of animation or not. So like at, at ABC back in 84, he was intended to be, he was supposed to be the next studio chief, but he was politically passed over by one of his colleagues. And so he was pretty bummed about that. And this was the exact same time that Roy Disney came down and said, hey, you know, he approached him and said, we'd like you to assume the position of CEO of the Walt Disney Company. And this is a pretty important time in his life because that's when he transitioned from real film to animation, had a, you know, a hand in the animation. But he accepted. Yeah, and, and Roy Disney was pretty slick when he asked him for the job because he didn't, he didn't let him do it alone. Roy Disney envisioned, you know, his uncle Walt and Roy, the original two, founders of the company and their relationship with each other and how they just gelled so well and you know their personalities were were different but that's what some people say made them work well together so uh, not only did Roy Disney hire Michael Eisner but he also hired Frank Wells and both of those guys shrewd businessmen CEOs of you know movie companies but one of them was pretty straight laced and the other one was super adventurous Frank Wells was a super adventurous guy you know always known to do the crazy things and and in the end uh, he met his match in a helicopter accident but you know he was an avid mountain climber and he did all of these things that you know you or I might not do but the two of them together worked so well a lot of credit was given to Frank Wells up until the time of his death for turning this company around with Michael Eisner yeah, they were the dynamic duo, sort of like, you know, I'm Han Solo, and you're the hairy beast Chewbacca. I was thinking more like Luke Skywalker, man. Uh, or, or maybe I'm Cliff Clavin and you're Norm. <laughs> That's fine, buddy. No one, talking cheers. No one messed with him, man. <laughs> All right, so D Dick Cook is another major player, and you might have heard of him. He was the head of developing and distributing, marketing all the films, live action and animated. Now, which this is pretty cool because... Cook actually started his career in 1970 with Disney as a monorail and steam locomotive operator, and he worked in the amusement parks. I, I thought that was really neat. He was also known, Dave, as the nicest guy in Disney's jungle for his down-to-earth personality and his good relations with Disney partners. And we all know what the backstabbing and the, the narcissists that are at the executive, executive levels in Disney, especially during that time, uh, he was kind of a mediator, and uh, he was deemed the nicest person. He had relationships with, with pretty much good relationships with everyone. And he kind of was the mediator for all of them. Sounds like he was some homegrown talent being a monorail and steam train operator. All right, let's go up to the next guy, which is Jeffrey Katzenberg. Uh, this is a dude that you didn't want to mess with. He worked his animators to the bone. He was the chairman of the Walt Disney Studios. Now he's the CEO of DreamWorks Animation. 
He's an active supporter of Barack Obama, and he was called one of Hollywood's premier political kingmakers and one of the Democratic Party's top national fundraisers. Yeah, I already don't like the guy because he's a Barack Obama supporter, and so, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the animators, you know, they respected him, but they worked so hard, and, and things kind of got to a head with, with Jeffrey Katzenberg because he wanted to be the face of the Disney company. He wanted to be the CEO of the Walt Disney Company, and the higher-ups did not want any part of that. Of course, Roy Disney promised him at the beginning that he would eventually become CEO, but I think with the performance of with Eisner and Frank Wells that things were going good and Roy Disney didn't want to mess with anything. And, you know, Katzenberg just was constantly out there, which was part of his job to promote, but uh, a lot of people think that he, he was out for one thing and that was him, and that, that fits with the whole cutthroat uh, society of the Disney Corporation at that point. Yeah, and he was probably the biggest narcissist executive at that time. Did I, did I use my superlative in the right context, Dave? Yeah, that, that sounds about right. Okay, good, I pass. Moving on. Will not be left behind. So, yeah, he was, man, was he just went to the extreme. He did not humble himself whatsoever. And he was promised the position of being C- the next CEO, but he just didn't humble himself. And he went out there and he traveled the country a lot promoting the Lion King film. And he used that as his crutch because, you know, that was part of his job. And he just he kept telling everyone with Eisner and Disney, I'm just doing my job. I'm promoting the Lion King. What, uh, what more do you want me to do? You know, but that got him in the papers and in the press and they were glorifying him and basically, you know, saying that he was the savior of the Disney animation studios. And that was the furthest from the truth. This guy, now he did have some of his ways people would say he went about pushing and motivating the employees, the animators in the wrong way. But he frequently held meetings on Sunday mornings at 6 a.m. And uh, eventually Roy Disney was like, hey, dude, if you're going to keep having these meetings so early in the morning on 6 a.m., which is just wrong in itself, and Disney did say that, you know, it's wrong to have them on Sunday, I'm going to start showing up in my pajamas. But the guy didn't care. And so he, like we said, he was just all about face and all about him. So I can just imagine in my mind when, when he got the call that Frank Wells died in a helicopter accident that he said, oh, really? Where? And can I have the job? Yeah, and here's a guy that also, when he went to talk to his animators in one early 6 a.m. morning meeting, he, he basically slammed the door shut, threw down some papers, said, you know what, I'm not in the business of making Academy Award winners. I'm in the business of making U.S., what do what you say? He said... Uh, U.S. Bank. Yeah, U.S. Bank movies, you know? So, I mean, dude, for people who are animators because they're creative and... They just want to... They're just passionate about being animators. Yeah, that was the last thing you want to say to a group of animators. And so if I was an animator in that room, dude, you would just lose all respect. So enough about that guy. Let's talk about somebody that's got the last name Disney. We're moving on to Roy Disney, right? Yeah, he was the vice chairman of the board of directors and the chairman of the animation department. And if I had to give this guy a, a title, I'd call him the Patriot. I'd call him the king. I mean, if I had the last name Disney and nobody else did, I'd be walking around that company with a crown on and a robe on, and they'd have to uh, treat me as royalty. 
Well, I call him the Patriot because he did what it took uh, to keep the company alive. You know, if there was a motto for him, it would be people are my business because people were his business. He took care of everyone and he tried bringing everyone together and he knew that he had some backstabbing high executive people in the wrong position. He finally did realize, you know, hey, Michael Eisner wasn't the right guy to put in and bring into the Walt Disney Company. Uh, He's done some good, but we're just conflicting. But, um, yeah, you know, there was a lot of attempts, uh, some hostile takeovers by some companies, some investors that wanted to buy Walt Disney and sell off the assets. And so Roy organized uh, what he called White Knight Investors to fend off the takeover attempts, which led to Eisner and Wells being brought on. So that's why Eisner and Wells were brought on was a kind of in the beginning to defend off these investors that wanted to buy out the Disney company and then sell their assets. So that's why he brought in Wells. He brought in Eisner to kind of be that dynamic duo to fend them off. So, and, and as it goes on, you know, during the nineties with Roy Disney, uh, the, he produced a lot of, you know, successes during this Renaissance period. We've talked about him, the Lion King and Aladdin and, and the little mermaid, but Roy Disney's influence though, Uh, began to wane as more executives friendly to Eisner were appointed to higher positions. And then when the board of directors rejected Disney's request, Roy Disney's request for an extension of his term as board member, he announced his uh, resignation on November 30th, 2003. And he went on citing, he wrote a letter to Eisner saying that, hey, he criticized him, issued a letter saying he mismanaged the company, neglecting the studio's animation divisions, failures with ABC. He was timid in the park theme park business. You know, Roy Disney always said, the reason why we have a theme park is because of the animation division. We wouldn't have a theme park if it wasn't for the animation. And he claimed that Eisner was very timid in, in, in the theme park business as long as, and in the animation business. And he basically just said that he was instilling a corporate mentality and an executive structure. Yeah, and if I knew my Shakespeare, I'd give some quote right now about how your uh, son stabs you in the back. Because he's the one that hired Eisner. You know, Roy Disney was the man that hired Eisner, and here he is getting pushed out by him. So after his resignation, Disney helped establish a website that was called SaveDisney.com, and it was intended to actually oust Michael Eisner. How would you like that? The man you brought in, Dave, and you, 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 you learn, you grow to actually hate the guy, and you develop a website to get rid of the man and all of his supporters from their positions and basically revamp the Walt Disney Company. And that's why I call the man a patriot. And I I love the scene in Waking Sleeping Beauty where they're at Frank Wells' funeral, I think. Yes. And and it's such an awkward, uncomfortable moment because Eisner introduces Roy Disney to talk and and Disney comes to the microphone and says, that's all you got? Because he didn't give them all the superlatives, I guess, that he felt like he deserved. So Eisner comes over and steals the microphone and, like, gives a really, you know, sarcastic response to it. Oh, yeah. He started, yeah, he started saying, oh, the mighty and greaty Roy Disney. You know, it's, it's just, and there's an example. At someone's funeral, Frank Wells, and you have two men. And this is where I was kind of like, you didn't see the whole story, though. You didn't see the whole clip of this, but... Disney, Roy Disney, really? You're going to say that to Michael Eisner at Frank Wells' funeral? That's all you got for my intro? You know, how narcissist is that? And then for Eisner to walk across the whole entire stage and then belittle the man in front of him, in front of everyone, 
dude, it had me scratching my head. You're at a funeral for crying out loud. So this is just another example of how all these men, these high executives, just did not get along. Even at a time where they need to humble themselves and remember one of the greats, Frank Wells, who was truly an awesome individual. They just couldn't get along. It's sort of like, you know, that one family member that shows up to the funerals that you just haven't seen in a while or just never get along with and that you just bicker about things of how things are going to be divvied up and everything else. That's what I picture. So the next player in our game here is Don Bluth. Don Bluth is a man that has got some intestinal fortitude here. Uh, he was the man that, like Nick said, shredded the Disney animation company because he, he left and literally took half of the animators with him. Yeah, on his 42nd birthday back in 1979. So this was right before, so we're kind of backtracking a little bit here. So that was like right before the Renaissance period. But right before the Renaissance period started, on his 42nd birthday, he took 11 fellow Disney animators with him. And they were in the middle of actually producing Fox and the Hound. He left in the middle of the production, Dave, and it set the production back by six months. Yeah, and people love this guy. I mean, they followed him around like he was really something. And like you said, he took he took half those animators with him right in the middle of a project. So I don't know. Did you in your research did you ever figure out why he left? Or did he have a disagreement, or just he just thought he was that good? No, he, he he really felt that he could do it better because they were going through some hard times. All right, and he felt with the nine old men that just didn't want to uh, try new things and didn't let the new guys experiment and be as creative as they wanted to be he's like you know what i can do it better and i really don't blame the guy but uh he used his charismatic charm to kind of brainwash a lot of the animators and and he was revered as a walt wannabe and like the next walt disney and he got 11 of them to actually leave now he did go on to produce some huge hits and he teamed up with steven spielberg and produced an american tale and i remember watching that it was Till the VHS tape couldn't couldn't even work anymore, but uh, and that grossed like one of the highest grossing films of all time at that point, killing Disney over forty five million in the United States and then over eighty four million worldwide. And he went on to also create films like Land Before Time, All Dogs Go to Heaven, and you know the rabbit hole for Disney just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper man he literally shredded the company right in half dave leaving them to just die and it would make sense that he was able to take so many animators with him because you know if you don't have the view of the nine old men and if you're not in good standing with them why not take a chance to go with this guy and and especially if you if you hear that some of your colleagues who you revere as well are going with him i'd go probably it's it's like that scene from jerry Maguire, who's coming with me This is when I think of, you know, Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi when they engaged, you know, in that epic lightsaber battle and Anakin was just left lingering in a painful death with the loss of all of his limbs, you know, with the blood spewing all over the place and he knew, like, the end was drawing near. So did that guy live because the Disney company did? That's actually, you're, you're absolutely right. It okay. did. Yeah. Okay, good. Then that's, so, a, that's a great, that's yeah, a great analysis. So the robots that came in to save Anakin Skywalker were like Katzenberg and Eisner and Roy Disney, <laughs> you know, and, and Howard Ashman. So it was supposed to be John Lasseter, but then he got fired. So uh, he wasn't part of <laughs> part of that group. Yeah. So let's talk about Lasseter. Yeah. Poor Lasseter, man. That dude, he was so uh, computer tech savvy. He wanted to gear uh, animation towards computer animation. 
the Walt Disney Company wanted to have nothing to do it do with it, and even more so nothing to do with it after the first all time animate or the first full length picture that was animated by the computer. Uh, they never did a short film; they just went ahead and did a did a full length feature. Was the Rescuers Down Under, and that totally flopped. Which is crazy because I mean, just think of a full length movie of something that you've never done, never tested, just. That took some guts right there, and uh, I don't feel bad for Laster because he's like a Disney god now. Yeah, so like him and Tim Burton were constantly held down by that thumb of Disney. And Laster said that the nine old men felt threatened by the new, young, talented animators. And, uh, you know, he was canned. Laster was canned, but he went on to create Pixar. He actually went on and started to defund Pixar. He started creating those, remember those old Listerine commercials? And they looked like Vikings. The bottles themselves looked like Vikings. They'd sing and hang from ropes and stuff. Yeah, you'll see that in Waking Sleeping Beauty if you watch the movie. I, uh... I thought that was classic that the guy goes from making Listerine commercials into this company. Well, yeah. I mean, he, he, he did the Listerine commercials on the side to fund his company. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So you also have players like Tim Burton. And, uh, you know, I think Tim Burton's kind of strange and weird to begin with. But uh, Nick has and I not- finally agree on something. <laughs> Do we really? All right. I yeah. cannot stand The Nightmare Before Christmas. Dude, I can't stand it either. I, can't, I don't see what people see in it. But yeah, okay, all right, we finally agree. Pound it. <laughs> Wa la 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 la. So, anywho, yeah, Tim Burton, an animator, uh, he left the Walt Disney Animation Studios to pursue, comp- to, to pursue computer animation um, as well as live motion pictures uh, with his friend, just like his friend John Lasseter. Both individuals, though, were ultimately asked back by the Walt Disney Company. So let's get to an individual that I think was basically, and this is the last individual, the Lord and Savior for Disney. And this person is Howard Ashman. This guy wrote all the songs, all of them. Yeah, he was a songwriter. And like I said, yeah, I think he was the savior for the Walt Disney Animation Studios, in my opinion. And yes, he was just a songwriter. He came from Broadway. You might know some of his productions like Little Shop of Horrors. That's when the Disney company called him and offered him a job after Little Shop of Horrors. So in 1986, Ashman was brought in to write lyrics for songs in a new Disney film called Oliver and Company. And I can remember playing the cassette tape with my with my Walkman, you know, and Remember uh, the mall in, uh, oh, geez, Northwest Plaza. Remember Northwest Plaza? Yeah. Dude, I can remember walking around my walk, man, playing that tape, listening to Billy Joel, you know, with Oliver and Company. That's hilarious. I probably have only seen Oliver and Company one time, actually. But I do remember the songs. I do remember the Alton John songs. So in 1988, while working on The Little Mermaid, you know, Ashman pitched to Disney the idea of another animated musical adaptation of Aladdin. And uh, after he wrote a group of songs, he partnered with Alan Menken. And uh, the rest is history, yeah, man. Yeah, that's gold right there. But I think it's funny that this songwriter can pitch a new movie to the Disney people. Like, hey, I got this, I got this idea. I know Alan writes songs, but hey, how about this? Dude, and he did. And not only did he do it, but he, he, he wrote all the songs. Like, all of them. And he would say, okay, let's just say this is the song for The Little Mermaid. And this is how it went. And this is how we sang it. And then it led into this song. And this was the storyline based off of that song. It was a musical they were trying to, you know, trying to sing for Ariel to convince her not to go on land. And let's just suppose that this guy was, you know, so it was just really cool, man. And he went on to do that again for Aladdin as well. He wrote all, most, actually all the songs for Aladdin, I believe. And uh, there was a lot that were actually cut out, a handful of them. But so involved with the Disney company and, and single-handedly kind of just wrote Little Mermaid and Aladdin. 
And he got very sick, you know, after Aladdin. And uh, then he was tasked that he was asked to help out with the picture called Beauty and the Beast. And he used the same concept with Little Mermaid and Aladdin. He kind of made it into a musical. And he wrote all the songs for it. And the rest is history as well, because Beauty and the Beast, it was an amazing film. Now, they did, that was the first time uh, after Rescues Down Under that they implemented some more animation into the films. Did you know that? So they went back old school. Well, they did, and they, and they implemented, uh, implemented, excuse me, some computer animation uh, with the ballroom scene, which I thought was neat. So that's kind of off topic. But Howard Ashman, oh my gosh. And you hear his songs in Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, Aladdin, and just... An amazing individual. Now, after after uh, Little Mermaid came out, he started getting sick, and he was sick during the Aladdin film, and even more so during um, Beauty and the Beast because he, he did have AIDS. And uh, so the Disney company valued him so much that they actually shipped all most of their animators up to New York, upstate New York, where they rented out a hotel, and that's where they produced all of the songs for Beauty and the Beast. Just so that they could be close to him. Right. Yeah. And it, it, the saddest part of the whole thing for him is that he never got to see the finished product. No. After it was, uh, it received multiple awards, he just died days later. So he never did get to see the, the, the final projects. But I, it, to me, I think he was the savior for the Walt Disney Company because he pitched a lot of these ideas and wrote all the songs and brought in people, well-known people like Elton John. He brought in... Uh, oh, geez, oh, geez, that comedian that just passed away a year Robin ago. Williams. Robin Williams, who the voice of Genie. He brought in all these people to do these voices uh, for these cartoons because he knew them and he had connections. So that's why I say, with his creativity and his connections, he truly was the individual that saved the Walt Disney Animation Studios. Yeah, and if you think about Disney movies in general, like going back to Mary Poppins and, you know, The Jungle Book and. All the way back to that with the uh, with the Sherman Brothers, it's like you can't do a Disney movie without having good music. So you know, I compare this guy to the Sherman Brothers and carrying on that Disney legacy with with great music to go with their movies. So now that you already know the players, there are some more things that kind of went down during this documentary, and so we just want to share some of this some of these with you. You know, the movie starts out with. Uh, home footage. Actually, the whole movie is home footage. And earlier you said it was from the point of view of Don Hahn. It's actually the point of view of all the animators because all of the animators uh, at some point working with the Walt Disney Company brought in their own camcorder and kind of filmed around the studios, uh, which is kind of unique because they got everyone's perspective on this era during this Renaissance era. And it's really fortunate because it's pretty cool because, you know, this footage that these animators would record, Dave, it was actually deemed unauthorized photography, and it was always strictly prohibited by the Disney lot. Uh, but in, but some of the best and rarest footage actually comes from uh, the animators and animators like Randy Cartwright, and, you know, for the actual film. Yeah, and you and I were talking before the show today, and, and I mentioned about how the first video clip that you see in Waking Sleeping Beauty is of these two animators doing their whole movie, and there goes Ron Miller, who was in charge of the whole animation department at that point, walks by, and they said, hey, hey, look, who's here? And he buddies up to him and puts his arm around him and is like, how you guys doing? What are you doing? Making a home movie? Oh, that's great. 
Yeah. And then he walks off and says, hi, mom. You know, so it's like it's like that was unauthorized is strictly prohibited by the Disney lot. And so you have awesome snippets of little slices of film from the animators, you know, put together in one documentary. And and it's pretty neat. So this documentary called Waking Sleeping Beauty, Dave, just like painstakingly balances uh, the conflicting points of view of all the animators and the team members and the studio chiefs who competed against each other for control and credit during this renaissance period. And that's why I love it. It's sort of like uh, they were recording reality television back in 1984, you know, before reality television was actually reality television. You notice that in the, in the movie Waking Sleeping Beauty, Eisner's got a pretty good quote Everybody's so cutthroat and, and trying to get at each other that you can go to any institution, any university, any hospital, any corporation, any home, any house that you know, and that you know that the human condition overshadows bricks and mortar every time. And it's about fear, envy, and jealousy, and comfort, and love, and hate, and accomplishment. Yeah, but that's coming from a, a huge bigwig with large egos, you know, which is so typical of Hollywood bigwigs. So at the beginning of that quote, you think that he's that he's talking about how, you know, it's the people that really matter. And then at the end of the quote, he just turns it on yeah. and, and talks about how it's really not about that. It's really about hating each other and, you know, being afraid that someone's always going to come after you and being envious of this person or that person because they're better than you. So if we could wrap this up, you know, Waking Sleeping Beauty. It's an era from 1984 to 1994, and it's said to be like a gasoline fire. It was a time of high productivity because, you know, the top executives, Dave's, that just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. But it was very stressful. And uh, there was a debate on every creative grain of each movie. And there was intense pressure to do to, to outdo basically the last competition. It was so chaotic. It was exhausting, but it was super thrilling. Making the film was very emotional, according to Han. Uh, it was very difficult, but uh, when he he says, when I look back, you know, at those years, I do so with equal parts of pride, joy, sadness, and humility. Pride in what we accomplished together, with some paint, pencils, paper, and persistence, and sadness at the loss of, you know, a person I say is the savior of the Walt Disney Animation Studios, Howard Ashman, and he's said to be their friend and mentor. Howard Ashman has also said, Dave, to be the person who gave the soul to Ariel and the Little Mermaid. Definitely a huge player in, in this whole turn of events that happened. And you know that people say that you don't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. And this was a make or break era for the Disney company. It was, it was heading in a spiral straight down. And, you know, there were threats to, to break the company up and sell it out as pieces. And this is a huge success story. But it does have a little bit of, uh, you know, greed, envy, jealousy, all of those emotions that go with it. So check it out. It's called Waking Sleeping Beauty. You can YouTube it. And I think, what, it's only like $2 to, to download, Dave. Or you can, you know, check in your, your Disney Movies Anywhere account and go ahead and download it like I did uh, through there. You can find it on iTunes as well. And I found it at the library. So it's, <laughs> so it's free if you go to the library. <laughs> 
So thanks again for listening to that podcast that entertains that space between your ears. This is the Nick and Dave Mousecapades podcast. I just want to give some shout outs to my brother Jeremy in Colorado. Ethan out in Anaheim at Disneyland. I hope you're having a blast. My dad, if you're still listening, God bless you. And to Jose Fontanus. Hey, man, thanks for listening. We keep getting all these downloads from Puerto Rico, dude. We really do appreciate it. And Mario, the popcorn cook right inside the Magic Kingdom. Go check them out when you're there on your next vacation. And also the two tickets to Paradise Travel. Thanks for sponsoring our show. Peace. Peace. Have a magical day. Ready to stand. Ready to stand. And ready to know what the people know. Now, you were doing more voice than that when we were yeah. recording, right? A yeah. lot more. A lot more. Let's keep that lid on okay. this time. But one thing you do is you work, think of yourself working more with, more intimately, working more intimately with Robbie or with the mic or with okay. whatever, but think of it as a smaller room. Okay. You may even want less light. I <laughs> want to just feel a little bit more enclosed. I want to be where the people are. Okay, you don't need a lot of breath to keep it down. I want to see. Keep it down there. So not as breathy, but yet not high quality. Like you're talking right now. Yeah. Okay. I want to be where the people are. I want to see. Want to see them dancing, walking around on those. What do you call them? Oh, feet. So a little yeah. bit lower. Just, just to start there, we'll, we'll find yeah, exactly what you got to do. Okay. Yeah, you're in a small and close place. Right. Don't perform. Talk to Simon. Okay. I mean, the, by the way, performance is fabulous. But I understand. <laughs> Make it way, more intimate yeah, instead of standing in front of the LaFontaine Theater trying to sing to 1,500 people. I want to be where the people are. I want to see want to see them dancing, walking around on those, what do you call Oh, feet. <laughs> Flipping your fins, you don't get too far. Legs are required for jumping, dancing, strolling along down a, what's that word again? Street.
even more. Okay, because I feel good. like I'm there, but... It's good. No, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's not fantastic. Keep it. I'm going to try one more, even more, using more of the tomboyish quality, no? Okay. Not not getting up into into the higher uh, feeling at all. Try. Look at this stuff. Isn't it neat? Keep it real strong. This is in there. And the amazing thing is everything that you is great. I mean, every little thing that you do is huge. Everything okay. is great. So it's like any, a big, uh, uh, isn't needed. Okay. It's like every little breath you take is enormous. Everything is, is everything registers. It's like your, uh, your litmus paper. Mm -hmm. um, so really try to work with just the intensity. It's like it's about all that emotion and then not letting it off. Not letting it off. Not letting it off, but having it here. When's it my turn? Wouldn't I love that stuff? Really, it's. Was, is I'm, is am I still a little too loud? You're great. Oh, better you're, that you're, time. You're great, better. but you are. Okay. It gets a little bright in here. Like, what would I give if I could live out of these waters? The intensity mm -hmm. is better than. What would I give? Is better than than noise. Moment. Yeah, and you're not doing it from them. It's but it's it's inner intensity. So even me. more, not as singing, mm -hmm. basically. Let, use less voice and not more intensity. As, okay. Just get in okay. on yourself. Get yourself. Get yourself in the place you're in. In the, in the big emotional scenes yesterday. Okay. Think of more than that. Right. Right. I'm not feeling tired. No. Uh-uh. I'm just trying to make my voice. I'm just trying to make my voice. I'm just trying to make my voice. Except you. And it. I'm just really working. Like you can forget about it. Robbie's in the corner of your of your mind. Forget mm -hmm. about him as well. Forget about Teddy. Yeah, yes, he no, does. I'm not even looking at him. I'm but really get not. yourself in. Whisper, 